Hey, good morning. Good morning, guys. So, uh, yeah, Joey's out of town, so uh, I'm talking to you. And uh, I have the message this morning, and uh, uh, I'm excited about it. And I'm uh, just excited uh, to dig into the Word and uh, uh, teach the Word. Uh, it's an awesome privilege, so I just really appreciate having that opportunity to preach and, and uh, thank the band, uh, Alyssa. Uh, uh, I just so appreciate the, the passion and, and her creativity that she brings to the worship. Uh, the video was pretty cool. Uh, that was a neat idea. I really like that. Thank you guys uh, in the booth for uh, all you do and making this work and all this, uh, this happen. Um, that last song, Death Was Arrested, is such a great song because it speaks of a transition, a transition from one state into another state. You know, the state of death into a state of life. Uh, a, a state of hostility into a state of peace. A state of new be- being, a new, a new position. And the Bible, particularly in, uh, in the epistles, Paul talks of this new position in terms of citizenship, that we are now as believers citizens of a new kingdom. We've we transitioned from being citizens of death, citizens of the world, citizens of Satan, into citizens of heaven. But along with that, that citizenship of heaven comes along with that a responsibility to walk in a manner that is worthy of that citizenship, that the walk needs to match our new place of being that we have in Christ and in God. So I want to talk this morning about that, about what that, what that walk is supposed to be, what that's supposed to look like. And we're going to speak out of the book of Ephesians. Now originally, uh, I wanted to talk about um, a passage talking about the, the later on that says, to speak truth and love, speaking truth and love. And so I went there thinking I was going to talk about that. And the reason is, you know, so given, given the, the circumstances of things, you know, now that uh, uh, with, with pandemic and quarantine and all of that sort of stuff, you know, for a long, long time, I have been resisting Facebook. Tooth and nail. Because I just want to stay out of the social media stuff. And I don't know, it just didn't seem like it was me. So I, I, for, for years and years, I'm like, no, that's not for me. Not going to do it. But now that we're in this, in this, uh, this kind of new, new realm, a new way of, of, of life, and just trying to get through this current, this current circumstances, I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to get involved in Facebook. I'm going to join it. And uh, uh, because the, the staying connected is really important as believers and so I thought, let's, let's do this. Let's get involved in, in Facebook. And there's just a lot of hostility there. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of good stuff. There's a lot of the connectedness, which is really good. I, I really find myself enjoying just seeing what's going on in people's lives and, uh, and whatnot. But yeah, but then you kind of throw in, in pandemic, election year, lots of different opinions. And, it, you know, it's, it's a recipe for a lot of disagreement. And... Um, and just a lot of hostility, a lot of it. And I'm like, well, how do we, how do we approach this as Christians, you know, as, as believers and, and as heralds of the truth, keepers of the truth, the truth being scripture, the Bible, the truth, the, the gospel that we have as Christ. You know, we, we are given the responsibility 
to uh, stewards of the word, to share the word, share the gospel, share the truth. How do we do this in a way that is loving? You know, in, in a way that conveys what needs to be said, um, but, but not in a hostile way, not in a, in a way that is ungodly, in, you know, in a way that Christ would, would speak the truth. And so that's where I went. Like, that's what I'm going to preach on. But as I read the word, and I was just talking to Pastor Tom this morning about this. As I read the word and I was studying, I realized, yeah, that passage is important. That is good. But it's actually much part of a larger passage in here. And, and really, God led me and said, no, no, no. This is what you need to talk about. Uh, the book of Ephesians it's really, it's really interesting book. It's a great, great book. It's, it's an epistle written by Paul. What's interesting about the book of Ephesians is even though it's attributed to, uh, as being written to Ephesus, uh, there, a lot of believers, a lot of scholars tend to think that, well, yes, it probably is directed, and maybe the church of Ephesus is a, a recipient, but it seems to be directed to a broader range of, of churches, not just in the city of Ephesus, but around it. Oh, there is a slide here. Um, slide number four. We have a map just to give us a visual representation. So uh, just uh, in Asia where Turkey would be today near the coast on the west coast, uh, you, it's kind of hard to see, but Ephesus is there. And, and so just to give you an idea of where we're talking, this book was directed to perhaps a series of churches just in that area. And what makes it interesting is usually the epistles especially like 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, you're entering in the middle of a conversation. And what I mean by that is Paul, the author of, say, of, say 1 Corinthians, he is responding to concerns and questions that that church, like the church in Corinth, had. And so that's why you'll see a lot of times in the, these other epistles, such as 1 Corinthians, you'll see the, these words like, now concerning or in regards to. So he's addressing specific points that have been brought up to him. Now in the book of Ephesians, we don't have that. So he's not bringing up uh, different points that have been addressed to him. It reads more like a, uh, a sermon. And it's just, a, which makes it a great book. Um, and there's a lot of great theology, a lot of great stuff packed in there. I wish I could unpack it all, but uh, we would be here for quite a while. And, and Wes told me I have to be done at 11.15. So, um, so we, can, we can't go there. Uh, but the book of Ephesians is, is written generally to various and, and different people. And there's two main sections to it. There's the first section, the first three chapters that deal with really expressing what it is, what the gospel is, what this new truth is that's been revealed in Christ that we have, this great new thing that has happened in Christ. So the first three chapters are talking all about that, laying that out there, of this great and awesome and mighty thing that has been done. And then we flip over to chapter four, and Paul makes a transition and says, therefore, in response to this, because of the great and wonderful things that have been done by God in Christ, this now is how we ought to live and lead our life in response to that. And that's where I want to pick up this morning and talk from. It's talking about this, this, this walk that we have. Um, and specifically, 
what I want to talk about is because of our heavenly citizenship that we have. Heavenly citizenship demands a walk worthy of the blessing. So we've been given a great blessing in Christ. We've been offered a position of citizenship in heaven. We ought now walk in a worthy manner of that blessing. And this is what it looks like. And Paul here presents five attitudes that go along with a walk that is worthy of the blessing that we have as citizens in heaven. So I want to pick this up in chapter 4. Now let's slide 2. It says, I therefore, and there's your key word, that something pivotal is happening in the text. When you see these, especially in the epistles, therefore, so then, it's usually there's a shift. Uh, this parallels well with Romans 12, chapter 1. It's the same idea, therefore. There's a big shift that happens right there in chapter 12 of Romans. Same thing here, chapter 4 here. There's a big shift in what Paul is presenting and presenting all of these great and wonderful things that we have done. Therefore. Now, just to give you an example, let's uh, look. Let's look at slide. I believe this is going to be slide. I'm going out of my notes, so of course. Slide six. This is, and this is really it. This is presenting it. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the courses of this world, following the prince of power in the, of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This was the previous state. All right, uh, chapter, uh, verse 4. You have that. It says, and there is one body and one, or, nope, wrong slide. The slide 7. So for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So back to slide two. Let's pick this apart. Let's dig into this. So I, therefore... Now, a prisoner for the Lord, this word for prisoner literally means in bonds, in bondage, in chains. And it has two senses to it. One sense is Paul is a prisoner of the Lord because of him sharing the gospel. He's doing something in, in a time period that is not being well accepted. He's causing problems. He's being thrown in prison. House arrest in Rome is, is, is what many think that this time period is. He's under house arrest because he's sharing the gospel and it's causing a ruckus in, 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 in around uh, Asia and uh, in, in churches in Greek. But he's also a prisoner in the sense of, he's also a prisoner for the Lord. So it is as if God 
has positioned him in this ministry in a place of bondage so that he may use him for his purposes. And so Paul is presenting this in a way to say, I am a prisoner for the Lord speaking on his behalf. So listen up. Because this isn't just me that's talking. But this is Christ talking through me. He says, I urge you. Now this word urge is a really strong sense of almost begging. I implore you. In some translations uh, kind of say it different ways uh, on that. And it's, it's really hard to get this out. It's, a real, it's almost a sense of, I really, 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 really strongly suggest. <laughs> I really, 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 really want you to do this. But he's not going to force it. It's not quite a command, but I really think you should do this. So um, there was a time that uh, uh, I, I, I had some, some money saved up. This was back when I played in, in, a, in a, my, my Christian band. And I had saved some money up, and I really wanted to use that money to buy this big sound system that we could use and go on the road and travel with. And I was, I was kind of passing it by my dad, just kind because of, he's, he's really good with, with money, and I really look up to him in his wisdom with, with handling finances. And I was like, hey, you know, I'm thinking about doing this. And he never said, no, you may not, you cannot do that, but he really let me know, I really think that's a bad idea. So it was that kind of a sense of, I, can't, I got what he was saying. It's like, I'm not going to force you what to do, but I really want you to you know, make this right decision. This is what Paul's saying here. Like, I'm not going to force you, but I really, you really need, you really need to consider this. So I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And the, now, in the, the verb to walk, this is a really literal meaning of, of what it means, and uh, to walk. And Paul likes to use this in a way to convey uh, a parallel with how you would lead your life. Your daily conduct is what he's talking here. So lead your life in a, in, in a manner worthy. Now this one's a hard one to figure out. This is one of the words in Greek that's it's hard to translate directly into English because there's not a real strong direct one-to-one translation here. So it's it's... If I was to translate it woodenly, it would be like saying to walk worthily or to worthily walk, which is kind of awkward. So that's why a lot of translations try to smooth this out a little bit. So it's to walk in a matter worthy. And what that word means, it really means literally to balance out. That there is a balance of the scales. And it denotes a sense of value so that what you weigh in this one hand of the scale in terms of value and worth, balances the other. So what this is saying is lead your life in a way such that it matches in value to the great citizenship that we have in heaven. The great blessing that we have in Christ, this great position, the new creation, a new life that we have in Christ. To balance out, walk in a way that reflects that. Of the calling to which you have been called. The calling, what, what I just said in, uh, in chapter 2. is where we talk about that. 
Um, and, we, and we just read that. Let's bring that up on the screen again. Uh, slide six. I want to read through all of this because this really captures just the enormity of what has been done and what we have in Christ. So again, and you were dead in the trans- trespasses and sins in which you once called, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were citizens of the world. Slide seven. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not anything we can do. We can't do it. We can't earn it. It has to be given. And it's not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That concept, again, coming up. Slide eight. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. I'm thinking about, remember, uh, um, back in the camp and that, that whole like saying thing that we had, but God being, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not going to do that. But uh, anyway, it just made me think of that. So anyway, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together With Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might know the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That is the calling. We've been invited to be a part of this great and wonderful thing, to be a part of God's story. Let's go back to slide two. To be among God's chosen people. Again, a transfer from a citizenship of the world to becoming citizens of God's kingdom. Citizens of heaven. And what we're talking specifically here, we, we being Gentiles, so there's a promise that was given to Abraham, to his people, which was the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. And God gave the promise to them. And he promised Abraham that all of your descendants would number greater than the stars. It started with that. And initially it was for the nation of Israel. But then... The other nations, the Gentiles. So if you are not Jewish heritage, you're Gentile. That's us. We are then included now in that great story, in that great promise. And in fact, it is said that we are fellow heirs. We read that in Galatians. We even read that here in the book of Ephesians 3.16. Three six, that we are fellow heirs. Once those of us who were once excluded, we are now included. We are now part of this great promise and the people of God. We are now part of that citizenship of heaven. And it's made possible 
by the reconciliation of Christ. Slide nine. That's kind of hard to read. I'll read it from here. So therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down his flesh or in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself new, one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So two have become one. We are one people in Christ. Fellow citizenships. They're citizens in the heaven, of heaven. So what does it mean to be a citizen? You know, for one, we have a shared identity. That identity, identity being in Christ. We belong to God. We are of God. We are part of God's people. That's our identity. It signifies a transfer of authority. When you become a citizen of a nation, you are accepting the, that nation's authority over you. And likewise, when you become a citizen of heaven, you are accepting a transfer of authority from the authority of this world, the passions of sin and the flesh, to now the authority of God and Jesus Christ. And with that, becomes with it vested with rights and privileges and blessings. You know, in our nation, we enjoy a lot of freedoms. That a lot of people, when they come here, they get to enjoy these new privileges and rights and freedoms. And it's awesome and it's great. And the same thing in, when, when we become citizens of heaven, when we accept Christ's authority in our life, we are also vested with great privileges. The spiritual gifts, having access to the Father through Jesus, the Holy Spirit in us. Those are just some of the great blessings and gifts that we have now. And along with that comes duties and responsibilities. And so therefore, if we are citizens of heaven, ambassadors representing God, so therefore the way we do life needs to balance out. It needs to match that great blessing and what we have. We represent God daily. And so we ought to live our life in a way 
that matches and lines up with who we represent. So I want to talk about these five attitudes that Paul presents here. Let's go back to slide number two. Um, Now these five attitudes come into these words that Paul presents of characteristics of, of that, that, that modify this idea of walking in a way that's worthy of this calling. Now these ideas are overlapping. So actually let's go to slide number five and show these, these overlapping meanings. So we have these different terms of attitudes that we as believers ought have, we as citizens of heaven ought to have. And they, they overlap and they spill over into the next. And so there's shades of overlapping meaning as we go from one to the next. Slide two. So the first, the first attitude that is listed here with all humility Now, this word, humility, is an interesting one. The original hearers of this word, this would not have been heard as a virtue. You know, we think of humility today. Humility, it's a virtuous thing. It's a good thing. To the original Greek ears, it would have been more of a derogatory thing, a lowliness, an attitude of servitude, of being status You could almost translate it today in a sense of humiliation. Now, that doesn't sound as good, does it? To live your life, to walk with humiliation? We don't like that. We don't like that that sense. We we, We like the other. This word was counterculture. back in the original, uh, to the original hearers. It was different than the way it worked in Greece at the time, and Rome in that, in that time, where, where the idea of humility, of lowliness, of being a servant, that didn't make sense. You, know, you wanted to be proud and strong. You know, th- those were the virtues of the day, not this idea of lowliness or servitude. But really what Paul's saying, what it really means, it means to acknowledge, to recognize that our worth, our value, apart from Christ, is nothing. It's to acknowledge where our true value is. That it's found in Christ. It's in God. He is the one that defines it. And nothing else. Because it's precisely and only in our position in Christ that we derive worth, that we derive significance. And maybe that makes you feel a little uncomfortable. I mean, because not only is this idea, humility, counterculture then, it's still counterculture today. You know, our, our society doesn't like that idea of, of our worth and value being tied to something outside of ourself. You know, we're taught 
these ideas of self-empowerment, individualism. It's about you and your decisions and your choices and your freedoms and, and you. And the point that's trying to be made here is, no, it's not about you. It's about something outside of you. It's about Christ. And if you don't put your worth and value in that, you're putting it in something that is of not value. And it's this idea of self-determination of worth. That you, it's up to you to decide that. That really comes to the root of sin itself. That, that we can live our life apart from God on our own. And although our culture does teach us that we are, that we are of great worth— it is true. We are. We are of immeasurable worth. But it's only a half-truth because what gets left out is the why. The world doesn't tell you why you're worth that. They leave it up to you to fill in that blank. It's up to you to fill in why. You know, why, why are you of worth and value? When, when we understand it from the biblical perspective, it's because we are made in the image of Christ that gives us immeasurable worth and value. And that's the difference. And so when we put value in something other than Christ, we put it in something that's ultimately worthless. And that's really where we end up with pride. And I, I am of value because you fill in that blank. I have significance because fill in that blank. What, what, what is it? And this comes to the heart of, of just our condition in Christ. Because we've been taught all sorts of things. We put it in all sorts of things. I'm no exclusion from that. Um, you know, be, being a, uh, a musician, you know, I put a lot of stock in my ability. Like, because I can play an instrument well, that makes me, you know, significant and valuable. No, it doesn't. I mean, God can use that. Great. But it doesn't make me any more valuable than anyone else. And so, like, if I have a Sunday where I really mess up, which is a lot of Sundays, actually, just ask the guys in the band. Um, you know, sometimes I just feel like, man, oh, I can't, like, I internalize it. Like, man, I really messed up, and I'm, I'm less of a person because I messed up. No, that's true. That's not true. That's a lie. So what is that? You know, maybe it's your paycheck. I have value and significance and worth because I have this paycheck, or I have this amount of money in my bank, or maybe because I drive this kind of car, or maybe it's because people like me. Um, you fill it in. We, it's, it, it can be anything. But if it's not Christ, if Christ is not that basis, that's counter to what we're talking about with humility is understanding our true worth and our value. And when it's not in Christ, it's ultimately something worthless. So um, I'll give you a little illustration of what I, what, like, what I mean by that. So I have two pieces of paper here. You know, this one says, has the number 20 on it. Now this one has the number 10,000 on it. Okay, so 
Like if I was to offer you this and say, hey, I will give you this in exchange for, I don't know, a meal, for example. Yeah, that's a worthy translation. You know, I'll, gi- I'll give you this and you, know, you give me dinner. Yeah, okay. This is a bigger number. This is 10,000. What if I said, I will give you this in exchange for your car? Who would take me up on that offer? Yeah, right here. Takers? No. Why? What's the difference? This has actual value. This doesn't. This has the backing of the U.S. government. This has the backing of me. <laughs> so, so there's a difference here. This is based on something which we agree is trustworthy and true for the most part. <laughs> you know, this is like, well, it's just a piece of paper. It doesn't have value. It doesn't have worth. Now, a hundred years ago, money was tied to what actually was called the gold standard, where for every amount of money, so $20, for every amount of money that you had, there was literally sitting in a vault somewhere, maybe Fort Knox, an amount of gold equal in worth to this. It was tied to that. It was called the gold standard. And that's what gave money its worth. Now, nowadays it's more complex because we don't tie it to gold anymore. But that makes it harder for me to do the illustrations. That's why I'm not going to talk about that. Um, But that's also why we call it the gold standard. Because the value is based upon a standard which everyone accepts is valuable and has worth. And that was gold. Similar to how you value your own life and value yourself. What is your standard? Do you base your standard on something, a thing, that's not Christ? Or do you base it on the Christ standard? So humility, by basing your value, knowing who you are, basing it on Christ. Humility leads to a walk that is worthy of the blessing as in citizens of heaven. It starts there. It's understanding our position in Christ and who we are. Now what about you? Where is your standard? Do you base it on the Christ standard or do you base it on something else? Now, now this attitude spills over into the next. It says, with all gentleness. And this is another hard word to get into. Um, But essentially what it means is mildness, discipline, restraint, um, another way to put it is it's a balance between two extremes of always being angry all the time and never being angry ever. So it's, it's a, a level-headedness might be another way to put it. Um, uh, one way that it's phrased is it's a balance between, or, or I should say, 
uh, sometimes it's phrased in antonyms. So, so, you know, the opposite extremes being assertiveness, harshness, demanding, the other extreme being dull, listless, unmoving, indifferent. So, you know, it's kind of the average between there. So, and then, but it's not to be understood in terms of being weak or timid. So that's why gentleness is kind of hard because it kind of gives us a sense of, of um, yeah, weakness. But that's not what, it, what, what, what we mean here. So, an, so this is an attitude, and I call it quiet gentleness. An attitude of, or, or, not, or quiet strength. So an attitude of quiet strength leads to a walk that's worthy of our heavenly citizenship. Um, and really, Jesus is a great and the ultimate example of what we mean here. Uh, Jesus wasn't the type that he was angry all the time. No, he wasn't. But at the same time, he did get upset. You know, he did get angry at times. Think of turning over the, 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 the uh, tables at the temple. Um, getting angry at the Pharisees. Uh, who are, who are making it all about pride and uh, turning people away from, from God. So another way to put this as we look to Christ is it's being angry at the right time and not being angry at the wrong time. And that's a good way to think of this idea of, of a quiet strength. And we know we have great strength. We have this immeasurable strength that we have in Christ. Think of uh, uh, Colossians 2, 9, 2, 9 through 10. When I am weak, I'm very strong in Christ. So we, we, we do have this great strength that comes from heaven. And we have this great confidence in knowing we have a God who supports us and behind us and has it all figured out. And so we can... You know, we can understand. We, 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 we don't have to be angry. We don't have to get uh, in, uh, get out of line or, and uh, be angry at the wrong things and look at to Christ and how he models it. Um, now, this is a hard one. This is a hard one for me. I, you know, that, I, I get bent out of shape, I think, too easily on things. Um, but just understanding and knowing when is it right and when is it not right. So I'll just provide some examples of and when, when maybe it is right to be angry and when it is not right to be angry. So the right time would be at the wrongs and sufferings of others. So when others are being hurt, injured, attacked, that's the right time to be upset at that. Now, still, we can be angry but do not sin. And we, that comes up later here in this, in this chapter. But we have a right to have this, 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 this uh, indignation when we witness the suffering of others. The wrong time to be upset is at the wrongs and inconveniences and insults you experience. So when it's happening to others, that's the right time. When it's happening to you, it's the wrong time. So, some examples. It's right to be angry when the innocent unborn are ripped from the womb. It's a good time. Then it's not right to be angry when someone disagrees with you on Facebook. Ah. Uh, <laughs> like, 
Yeah, that's hard. It's right to be angry when we see authority figures abuse those who can't defend themselves. That's right to be angry when we see that. It's not right to be angry when the drive-thru messes up your order. That's not quiet gentleness. It's right to be angry if you witness someone disparaged or disrespected because of their race. If we see that, we call that out. We're right to be upset at that. So those are my ideas of how we approach that. There's a, I kind of ripped this term unapologetically from a, a gentleman by the name of Tony Dungy. Perhaps you've read the book called Quiet Strength. Um, slide 11, in case you haven't. And he, his, uh, his approach to coaching and to life uh, really sums it up in this way of this guy who has just a tremendous ability and command and passion, but he leads it in a way that he doesn't have to yell and scream to get his point across and really lives his life in a way that reflects this idea of a quiet strength. And he tells a story of when he was a small boy with, uh, with his brother and his dad, they were fishing. And he said his, his dad is normally a really quiet person, didn't really say much. And so they're fishing, not saying much. And all of a sudden, just out of the silence, his, his father, matter-of-factly, just says, Hey, uh, uh, son, could, could you hold up just a minute? And, and he's talking to his brother. And, and Tony looks over and just kind of notices he's messing with his ear. It's like, you know, and he just, matter of fact, he says, okay, now as you're casting, just make sure that you know what you're casting at and know who's behind you when you're casting. And it turns out as he's talking, he's fishing a hook out of his ear. I mean, if it was me, I think I'd be pretty upset. And, and, and it'd be hard not to be angry and, and just lay into this kid. But he doesn't. I think it's a good example of what quiet strength is. So you have this tremendous ability. He is his dad. He could have just, he could have laid into him. Could have punished him. He's bigger than him. He has authority over him, but he doesn't. He chooses restraint. So that's an example of quiet strength. And that's an attitude that uh, leads to a walk worthy of the blessing that we have as citizens of heaven. And this spills over into the third attitude that Paul presents here. Let's go back to slide two. So with all humility and gentleness, quiet strength, with patience, the word here, this word for patience, what it, what it means is, is a long-suffering endurance. This idea of persistence, staying the course. 
Um, it really finds its meaning when we talk about God's patience with us. And uh, there's a story that Jesus tells, a parable. Slide 10. Let's see how small that is. Yeah, that's pretty small. Slide 18. Or slide 10, chapter 18. Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Then we'll start to pick it up at 23. It says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven, this is Jesus talking, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is a lot smaller amount than what he owed. It's important. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleading with him, have patience with me. The same word, the same idea, the same kind of patience. Put up with, endure, um, just wait, wait a little bit longer. Um, stay the course. Just have patience. I will repay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that he had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and you should not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had, or you should have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So it's the same, it's the same word, that same idea of patience. Same word that is being used here in slide two. Of patience. So because God has patience with us, because he put up with us, because he stayed the course, seeing the view of redemption and withheld his wrath from us and instead offered his son instead, paid our debt of sin, offered us grace. You know, we ought to extend that same kind of patience to others. Then when others have indebted us, we ought to stay the course in our relationship with them. So it has this uh, seeing the big picture. Not just looking at the immediate, but the bigger picture of what's going on. And the bigger picture here is God's story. And seeing how God's story is working through all of this. I mean, we know how it ends. So we can deal with these, these inconveniences of others. We can stay the course and have that end goal in mind as we deal with people, as we conduct our life, as we lead life, as we walk a life and walk in this life. That's how we can walk it in a way that is worthy of the blessing, as we have patience with people. So it means we don't give up on people. And no one, 
is a lost cause. Christ died for all. You also, if you're in that moment and, uh, you know, maybe somebody just had a bad day, you know? And you you don't know the bigger picture in, in, in their life. So give grace and patience with, with them. And again, remember the patience that God has with us. So again, it's, it's, maybe you're on Facebook and you feel like people are coming at you because of your opinion or, or, or because of what you believe in Christ. But remember that end game with, in, in mind and how we interact with them, that, that uh, we don't just write people off. We don't just consider them a lost cause. Um, I got to share this video with you. Um, I have like 30 seconds, Wes. I'm sorry. Um, no, uh, I watched this video. I think it illustrates well this idea of putting up with and, and uh, having patience and illustrates that, uh, that concept. So we have this dog here. Just putting up with. So maybe that feels like you you're just staying the course. You know, he's, I think it also inter- illustrates quiet strength here. Because he does get to a point where, okay, that's enough. We can, we can go back to uh, slide two. You get the point. So enduring patience this idea of enduring patience that leads to a walk that is worthy of the blessing as citizens of heaven. And so if we deny that, we in a way are denying the patience that God has with us. So we have this attitude of humility, understanding who we are in Christ. Attitude of quiet strength. You know, we don't use our authority that we have in Christ in a wrong way. We, we, we conduct ourselves in a mild manner, enduring patience. And then this spills into this next attitude, which is called loving forbearance. Now these two words are, strong, are, are really strongly linked. So in the sense that uh, uh, patience and this next idea of bearing with one another in love, which I'm I'm calling loving forbearance. You know, these two words are connected, again, linked from one another. So this, the idea of patience in the first side has this sh- shade of meaning of enduring, of persisting, of having the bigger picture in view. This other idea of bearing with one another in love is the idea of putting up with one another. Putting up with our flaws. Loving a person for who they are. A true love. Uh, and that word there, uh, to put up with, it's, it doesn't translate real well, but it means tolerating or putting up with, bearing with um, one another. And again, the idea of love, is, it's, it's the true love. This is the agape love that's coming out here. And what it is, is it's seeing someone for who they are in Christ as a creation of God's, and desiring their best interest. 
their highest good. This is agape love. This is true love. Is really earnestly desiring the highest good for the person. And when we have agape love, we understand, we realize that Christ died for each and every person. He was willing to die for everyone. And so what this means, this idea of, of bearing one another in love, is we put up with each other's flaws. You know, we're all flawed. We all mess up. We all have mistakes and annoying tendencies. You know, just ask your spouse. Now take my wife, for example. She's flawless. But I'm not. She really puts up with me. And uh, uh, I think that's one thing that just, uh, is just so amazing about her. I love her so much. Um, but no, we do. We all have our tendencies. We all have our flaws. We all get it wrong sometimes. And by getting it wrong, I mean sometimes we get relationships wrong. Sometimes we get interactions with each other wrong. We say things wrong, out of turn. You know, something comes out that it wasn't what we meant, but it just came out in a wrong way. That's what this idea of bearing with one another is knowing how we mess up. You know, sometimes we say things that come out hurtful. We didn't mean it to. That's not what was intended. You know, sometimes we just make wrong choices. And sometimes it also means that we agree to disagree. You know, we all have our opinions, we have our ideas, we have our understanding. Um, but we also have understanding based upon com- incomplete information. You know, we don't, you know, the Bible gives us what we need. It's sufficient for salvation, but it doesn't have all the details of it. And, you know, Paul talks about elsewhere not getting, not getting hung up on disputable matters. You know, things that don't really matter to salvation. Um, we have different experiences so we're going to disagree, and that's okay. It's okay as believers that we disagree, but it's how you do it that matters. And so if we have a disagreement, if we have a discussion, um, you know, if, again, if, let's go back to Facebook, disagree with somebody, that's okay. But don't come at it with an attitude to win. Come at it with this idea of discovering truth and, and, and having true dialogue and conversation. That's as we as believers, that's how we can, we, we can disagree, we can agree to disagree, we can still love each other. We still desire the highest good. We understand Christ is willing to die for each and every one. And it also means that we settle our grievances. You know, if we do have a disagreement, let's, let's settle it. Let's deal with it. That's another way that we're bearing with each other, putting up with each other in love, is if we have a disagreement, let's, let's settle it. Bearing one another in love also means, in this, an, idea, an attitude of loving forbearance, it means we don't place unrealistic expectations on each other. Maybe on spouses, maybe on our bosses, on our pastors. That's, that's, that's something that happens a lot. We expect our pastors to be perfect. And we expect them to always be happy, never have a bad day. And sometimes they do. And that's okay. That's how we bear with one another in love. You 
And the Bible provides no exceptions to loving others. No matter how much they disagree with you, maybe even how difficult they are, there are people that don't want to be loved by you. They don't want your affection. They don't want your love. They don't want your goodwill for them. And so loving difficult people, especially the ones that reject it, it's really hard. But the Bible doesn't give us exceptions on whom to love. And it doesn't come naturally. And, we, and if we're honest with each other, I think we're all, we all have moments that were difficult to love. Again, ask your spouse. <laughs> um, and I know sometimes it's hard to love someone, especially when they've hurt you deeply and they've wronged you. That's sometimes when it's the most difficult. It's the most difficult to have this attitude of loving forbearance, this attitude of bearing with one another in love. Because I know for me, when I've been hurt, like the fangs want to come out. And, and I just want to injure. It just feels like that's, that's what I want, but that's, that's, not, that's not the Spirit of God in me talking. That's the flesh in me. Um, now what about you? You know, are, are there difficult people in your life that are hard to love? Do you write them off? Or do you, do you, do you remain faithful to calling to love and to put up with? Um, are you that difficult person? I don't know. I, sometimes I feel like I can be, um, if I'm completely honest. Um, but I know I can't, I, I, I can't reject others. And do you, do you place unrealistic expectations um, with no room for flaws upon your spouse or your children, friends and family? So loving forbearance leads to a walk worthy of the blessing of citizens. Because that matches, having that walk matches, that attitude matches the blessing that we have as citizens of heaven. And finally, the fifth attitude, striving for harmony. And this is really gets at the point here. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. This, uh, this idea of eager, it's, it's an action. It's not just a feeling of a willingness or I, I want to. It's, it's an actual, it's an action. It's a, it's, uh, the New American Standard translates it striving or endeavoring, some other translations will use. So, so it's not, not just agreeing with the idea of maintaining unity, but it's striving for. They maintain the unity. Now this, this, is, this was the hardest passage for me to unpack as I was preparing this, um, because there's a lot of linking and modifying words here. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So unity, that, that literally translates to oneness. Singularity, oneness, a oneness of the Spirit, which in this sense is meaning not just a condition within the Spirit, but also this idea of unity from the Spirit, that the Spirit is provided as a gift from God. So striving to maintain, and this word maintain, it means to protect, to guard, to keep. 
So striving to protect this oneness that we've been provided through the Spirit in the bond of peace. The sense here, in, in the bond of peace, this bond is the same root that we find earlier, prisoner of Christ, in bindings, in chains. So it's just in the sense that we have a oneness in the Spirit that consists or is held together by the bond of peace. Peace is what holds unity together. So that's why the attitude that I come out of this is striving for harmony, striving for peace, to protect and preserve the unity that we already have in Christ. And this oneness isn't just a, a, a kumbaya type oneness and where we're all in agreement in, a, in an ideal set of things that we all agree on the gospel and the idea that, that uh, Jesus died for our sins. It is a oneness in that we are literally in Christ. Very much in position. It's our identity. And it's our status as citizens now of heaven. So we have this unity that we have and held together by this peace. Peace in connecting with, going back, connecting with the bearing one another in love, with patience, quiet strength, or the gentleness, the humility. So it's made possible through Christ and what he has done for us on the cross. And so it's these four other attitudes that really provide those bindings for what peace is and how peace operates and holds things together. So when our humility is based on something other than the Christ standard, when it's based on counterfeit worth, our peace, our harmony weakens. So when our quiet strength, that attitude is when, we, when it wanes, peace weakens. When we give up on this persevering patience, peace weakens. It's another bond off. And when we abandon the idea of, of the attitude of loving forbearance, putting up with one another in love, peace weakens. And when we seek striving for it, striving to protect it, to maintain it, it falls apart. And this idea of this oneness, it's very fundamental to our identity in Christ. And we are, like I said, we are literally positioned in him. So if we don't walk with these attitudes and peace suffers, a unity falls apart. It's an incompatibility between the oneness that we have compared to the actuality of division. It's an incompatible state with each other. We must uphold oneness. It doesn't work to be divided and in Christ. So we must actively engage in it and, and engage in this idea of striving and maintaining the unity, maintaining peace. And there's some ways that we can do that. One, we can stay engaged with the community. Now, I was just talking with uh, 
a couple uh, just right before I talked where the uh, where uh, you know this this those whole idea of quarantine and stuff like that we're finding out how much we really need personal face-to-face interaction so we need to stay connected so get connected in a safe way um but be connected. Read the Bible. Spend time with God. These are all great ways to stay engaged. Uh, it's a little bit like, you know, this idea of peace holding unity. It's a little bit like a knot between two ropes held together and tied together that holds the two knots together. But if the knot comes apart, the two ropes come apart. It's a similar idea this idea of maintaining peace, striving for peace and our unity that we have together as a oneness and our one identity that we have in Christ. So, so what about you? So in closing, I'll just say this. So we have our five attitudes that are presented. A citizen of heaven walks with humility and they realize that self-worth is based on the Christ standard. A citizen of the world bases their self-worth on worthless things. A citizen of heaven walks with quiet strength, angry at the right time, not at the wrong time. A citizen of the world cancels people they don't agree with. A citizen of heaven walks with enduring patience. They maintain a bigger picture perspective A citizen of the world lashes out at perceived wrongs. A citizen of heaven walks with loving forbearance, overlooking the flaws in others as they seek their highest good. A citizen of the world is intolerant of those who are different. A citizen of heaven walks with harmony, striving to preserve the unity that's fundamental to identity as God's people in Christ. And a citizen of the world seeks to divide and disrupt. What about you? Are you a citizen of heaven, a citizen of the world? And so I'll just make this. And so I'm talking about interchurch things here. You know, unity within the church. But I think these attitudes, these principles can apply outside. And not only could they make us good citizens of heaven with each other, but I think if we apply these in our walk outside with everyone, not just fellow believers, that perhaps we can promote this idea of greater unity and being better citizens outside the church, in our community, and better citizens within our state, and even perhaps our nation. And I just want to leave with this one video, where I think there's, we, uh, video was shared around Facebook. Uh, it was a really powerful video, where uh, someone in our community gets it right. And I think really, really exemplified these attitudes in a way that uh, a citizen of heaven ought to. Um, and I'll just, I'll just let the person tell their story. Can you show the video?
The officer, Mike, I don't know if you're watching, but thank you. Um, yeah, I, I think you got it right. Um, and I hope that uh, you know, we can take, take, take away from that uh, you know, something we can do, that, you know, that we, we can emulate that. You know, and, and, and I want to put him up on a pedestal. He's going to mess up. He's going to have his bad days too. Um, but I think he exemplified that, that, that well. This idea of being, you know, the, the attitudes the citizen heaven has. So I just want to leave you with that. Um, invite you to rise. Thank you. You've been really patient with me. Hopefully bearing in love, enduring me. <laughs> bearing with my flaws. Uh, but thank you. Um, but let's pray. God, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to study your word, to gather in your name, to lift you up, to praise you, uh, to speak the truth of your gospel. Thank you of this great privilege and blessing that we have as being invited, as being a part of the people of God, to be citizens of heaven. And Lord, help us to get these attitudes right. You know, we, no one gets them all. You know, we all have growth. We all have improvement to be done. And so Lord, I ask in the, by, by the work of your spirit that illuminates in our hearts, um, to illuminate those areas where, where um, we need you more. Lord, that we can walk our life or walk through life, lead our life in a manner that reflects you well. That's worthy of the blessing that we have as citizens of heaven, the blessing that we have in Christ. And we may maintain that oneness that represents you and who you are. Lord, that people may see the truth of the gospel and the invitation to the call. We pray your blessing on everyone here. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Have a great week. Great holiday.